Welcome to the podcast of ITFA 2018. My name is Orwan Erabia. I'm ITFA's Artistic Director. In this podcast, we're presenting a selection of recordings from the year's industry sessions and talk talks. This episode features the industry talk, Solidarity with Filmmakers at Risk. With civil society shrinking in many parts of the world, documentary filmmakers are increasingly struggling to make their voices heard, leading to their arrest, imprisonment, and sometimes even murder. ITFA invited filmmakers and other stakeholders to share their experiences and to try to outline a possible coordinated strategy for action, a strategy that effectively serves filmmakers at risk. Guests, among others, are Maxime Tula, Tuki Henkwell, Stephen Markovitz, Andrea Kuhn, Cara Mertes, Claire Aguilar, Jess Serge, Julie Trebou, Rasmus Steen, and Rebecca Lichtenfeld. This session was moderated by Boris Dietrich, a human rights activist, former politician and writer, and was recorded on November 18, 2018. Dear friends, dear colleagues, it's heartwarming to have all of you here with us uh, for such a meeting, such a debate, to talk about this very important subject. First, before I say a few words about what we're doing or how I see this, uh, how uh, what we hope about the ending of this, I want to say that we started from the point that this is solidarity, filmmakers, and danger, risk, taking risk, facing risk, helping each other, standing together, is certainly not a question that can be divided between documentary and fiction. It's certainly not a question that can be divided between different regions, necessarily. It's one big experience, film, and this brings us together. For this, I am so happy, thankful, that I will be joined by Bero Bayer, the director, the artistic director of International Film Festival Rotterdam. And together, we start this off. We consider this to be a beginning of a hopefully long process of examining this difficult moment in our mutual history. Bero, kindly join me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, uh, first of all, thanks a lot. Um, festivals are always supposed to be in a joyous occasion. I'm always happy that I'm here. I was happy on opening night. You're happy that you're able to show films. And a couple months when you all travel to Rotterdam, we have the same experience. We're also happy there's films that made it. And usually you can introduce filmmakers that have made it also. And the very simple, hard truth is that too many times you point at an empty chair. Because in the best case, that person is still alive, but he's locked up someplace. Uh, that is not good, clearly. And if we have a responsibility and a platform, as festivals have, that's why we have funds like the, uh, like the Bertha Fund or Hubert Bowles Fund that try to support filmmakers that are in regions where there's no logical support. That seems all evident. And it's also evident to show those films. But it's an altogether different arena 
once we get to the point where we're looking for, and this is why I think the word solidarity is such a well-chosen term, for the right network of people that can actually bring something forward. We don't, and I don't think you have the illusion either, to provide any, you mentioned this just now, any, to provide any kind of safety or ultimate support or guarantees. That's not going to happen. All the filmmakers, both documentary and fiction, are deliberately moving into areas of adventure and danger because there's something that needs to be said or needs to be discussed through film. So it's an illusion to be able to provide that space. It would be nice, but it's an illusion. What's not an illusion, though, is that all of us, and that's why I'm also so happy to be able to be here and to see all these people and all these organizations, there is a network of people that realize if we do this together, at least we can show solidarity. At least we can show that all those efforts will not go in vain, will not go unnoticed, that if you choose as a filmmaker to put yourself in harm's way, there's people that help you. And I think from both your and my personal experiences, way before we became festival directors, there's always this moment when you're in a project that from a space you did not realize it was even there comes a voice of support, a voice of solidarity, or a movement of help, of aid, that somehow has made all the difference. And if today we can discuss about ways to enlarge in that space somehow, to know what we're doing, to connect those, I think that's already a fantastic first step. Uh, I would say that in a couple months' time we should do the next step and organize a similar event and we bring fiction people together and you're very much invited, as are you, to take this discussion further. Because, uh, alas, if we want to keep celebrating those films, it means we celebrate the very spirit of daring filmmaking, both documentary and fiction, that dares to challenge the powers that be. And if we look around at the powers that be, boy, do they need challenging. Uh, so let's try and get that moving. What do you say? Thank you very much, Peru. It's already starting then with a success. We will be following up yes. together, and this is already a step ahead. Now, of course, it's not a secret that this is uh, also uh, a very important personal experience to me this entire question. I am one of those who were facing a very difficult uh, situation and was saved by the film community. The film community stood in solidarity with me and this changed my life. This is not something to forget. This is not something to... Uh, to ridicule, this is something very big, and I am sometimes surprised that many of us forget how strong we are. I think when we come together, we truly have an impact that politicians don't have, that many uh, organizations of, of dedicated organizations don't have. Film is an influential medium, but it's also an influential community. Now, I must say that I was uh, shocked when a Russian colleague was murdered in Central African Republic. 
I was shocked. I took it very personal. And just to clarify, it's not, we're not good friends. We, it's not like we're close friends. The thing to me was, where's everybody? It was painful, truly. It was painful. It was, uh, uh, I couldn't easily survive this feeling without saying, let's do something. How come a colleague was murdered and we did not know what to do? Now, we have problems all over the world of film. Our colleagues here from Turkey, Sarah and Zainab are here, and their colleagues were just detained yesterday. Gladly, most of them released today, but they were detained yesterday for obvious political reasons. We have big problems in Poland. We have massive disaster in Venezuela. We have a serious challenge even in the USA. Filmmakers are really facing some strangely difficult situations. And we look at the rest of the world. Everywhere there are challenges. But are we going to be a community? Can we? Can we stand by each other or not? Now, we invite all of you to try together to figure out what is it that we can do. We don't want to be coming up with a, an idea that we think is the answer. We don't want to be coming and saying, yeah, listen, this is how we solve it. We are here because we are starting a journey of figuring out how can we all activate this sense of mutuality, this sense of common good, of solidarity. Defend each other, help each other with eye level, together, shoulder to shoulder, eye to eye. We are a family in a way, I think. And, uh, and, and thank you. Let's just try to take it a step further in this discussion. It's not easy, but we have a chance now to continue in January in Rotterdam and take it from there and see how can we do it. And I promise you, the problem is not money. The question is not how do we finance whatever it is that we want to do. The challenge is what is it that we want to do. Let's try to find it with your help, all of you. Thank you. And I will invite our dear Boris to take over and try to moderate this good challenge. Thank you, Boris. Actually, I don't need the microphone. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, you laid out the groundwork, and uh, immediately I thought it's going to be very difficult to moderate such a session with so many people from different angles, um, trying to find the answer to the question, what can we do in terms of solidarity with filmmakers at risk? What we are going to do, we have about two hours today, um, and we will start with a panel discussion with four filmmakers, producers who were at risk and who do have um, this experience how to work in such an environment um, that is dangerous or potentially dangerous. Before I invite them um, to come to the stage, uh, I see some people, and it's of course everybody has a cell phone taking pictures, I must tell you, there are some people in the audience who asked me um, not to be uh, on a picture because of security reasons. So I hope that you would like to refrain 
from uh, taking pictures because uh, we don't want people uh, you know, to be outed through social media and then later on in the year um, to um, uh, have the repercussions. So please don't take pictures. Um, and there are some people in the audience who do not wish that their names uh, will be disclosed, uh, but we will get to that once we open up the floor for questions and answers. So let me start for the first half hour to invite four uh, filmmakers, Steve uh, Markovic from South Africa. Please come and take a seat um, on the couch. Um, Tuki Jenkel, please sit down. And then uh, the last one, uh, Maxim Tula from Estonia. If you um, want to sit on the chair, then I will be seated here. And uh, most of you I talked with uh, before we started, uh, except for you, Maxim. So I will start, uh, let's say, with um, Steve. Um, Steve, you produce some films in Africa, in Kenya, for instance, and a very recent film um, which um, got to the headlines in the international press was Rafiki, a film about two lesbians in Kenya. And um, as most people know, in Kenya, homosexual conduct is still criminalized. It's this old uh, UK law. Um, I think up to 14 years imprisonment. And um, there was this film board, and they decided we don't want to show the film because it might um, influence people, young people, to become lesbians. Can you talk a little bit about the process and about the pressure from authorities and how the filmmakers and you as producer, how you navigate it in this shrinking space for civil society? Sure. Hello. Thank you. Thanks very much. And, and thanks to the festivals for organizing this, this discussion. Um, yeah, I think, you know, in a way it's been a positive experience, uh, which might sound strange. But the reason I say that is that four years ago we produced a, a film in, in Kenya called Stories of Our Lives. Uh, which was also a gay and lesbian film, and that was banned. The, the producer was arrested. The actors were under threat. They had to move houses, and it was a very tense time. And we learned a lot from that experience. So four years later with Rafiki, we kind of went into it with a far kind of shrewder legal strategy, and uh, we saw a change in the country with this. When the film was uh, accepted into Cannes and then it was banned, we, we knew from inside the Kenyan government that there was an internal debate about this film where there were people who were supporting it being shown uh, in, in cinemas, right from the presidency through the police de departments and, and the foreign affairs ministry. So I think what happened uh, with, with this film is there was less of a kind of physical threat and it was more about our legal strategy. We're now taking the, the government to the constitutional court to overturn this law and we are suing the government for loss of earnings because of the banning. So, uh, you know, we've kind of changed our strategy and because it's been quite a high profile film, a lot of uh, Kenyan society have been a lot more supportive of the film than, than Stories of Our Lives. I think with Stories of Our Lives, it was, it was easier for the government to dismiss 
miss uh, uh, the artists and the filmmakers and immediately labeled the film pornography. Uh, whereas this time, uh, you know, there was, because it had received some artistic recognition, it put them in a much more difficult position. Uh, so I see it as, as progress. I think that there are signs of, uh, of the government cracking around this, this issue. And, and, and there's, you know, what, what we're looking into is, you know, because Kenya has quite a good constitution, uh, but it hasn't been tested. And there's all these old colonial laws which are still in play which have to be challenged. So I really think the next, uh, the next uh, period is after we've challenged it in Kenya is to start looking at other countries in Africa where we can challenge uh, uh, the laws there to overturn it. And it's not, it's not about Rafiki, it's about artists in general. The, the court case against the government is uh, in partnership with the Creative Artists Working Group, which is a conglomeration of artists across the country. So it's really about creating a space for artists uh, to express themselves a lot more freely. Now, Kenya has quite a vibrant uh, civil society and people go to court and there is independence of judiciary. So the judge, of course, also said, well, we can show uh, the film. Um, is there something in this process that you thought, well, we need solidarity from the international film community. We need something which we cannot get in Kenya. Yeah, I think it's also been interesting how it's changed over time because when Stories of Our Lives is banned, we were approached by a number of international celebrities who wanted to put out statements in support of us. And we said no, because I think there's a narrative uh, that this is all coming from the outside and it's not driven by Kenyans themselves. And the Nest Collective, who made that film, were very clear that they wanted to, this to be a Kenyan-driven initiative and not to be seen as outside is trying to influence society. Whereas I think now it's, it's changed is that we want people to come out in support of us. I think society, that narrative has shifted a little bit. And, and so we want, we want uh, you know, kind of a network and solidarity with, with filmmakers and, and, and people who, who are aligned with us uh, to come out and talk about it. Maxime, uh uh, sorry, um, Maxim. Then I uh, wanted to uh, say Tuki, because we discovered we are almost neighbors, right? In Berlin, for me, that's a very joyous thing uh, living in Berlin. But you had to leave your country, Venezuela, after you made a documentary. Can you talk to us about it? Yes. Um, well, I, I'm very lucky, I must say, because I have a dual citizenship, so I, I, I can live in Europe. I didn't have to apply for an asylum or anything. And uh, the reason, really, I, that I left Venezuela is because of the uh, huge problems of uh, insecurity, of violence, and I have a small daughter, so I was lucky that I could go. Right now, Venezuela is the second country with the biggest migrant crisis after Syria. Mm -hmm. uh, two and a half million Venezuelans have already left in the last two years because of hunger and a lack of medicine. Um, I did a film that is showing here in Itfa now, and it's about the um, uh, scarcity of medicines. I, I started filming when the scarcity started, 
and um, the whole Venezuelan crisis that uh, has been shown in the press is uh, completely denied by the Venezuelan government. They say it's, um, it's actually a media fabrication. It's not happening. Venezuela has the best healthcare system in the world. It's universal healthcare, etc., uh, etc. Et so the whole mindset is if you go and you make a film that shows something different, then you are part of the international propaganda machine that is trying to discredit the, the government. So um, I didn't leave because of the film. Uh, I was shooting the film while I was there, then I left and then I went back to shoot and, and I'm planning to go back. I don't feel like uh, I'm, I'm threatened because I made the film, although my mom thinks otherwise. <laughs> and uh, Mothers are always <laughs> yes, She right, doesn't want me to that? go back. <laughs> But um, I did have an experience with a good friend of mine who was jailed for making a documentary film. And uh, I was, he was a foreigner. He, he basically uh, was living in my house when he was doing the film. So I was the person bringing him food, bringing him clothes. And uh, I also went to the public prosecutor to testify. And one thing that struck me when I did that was that... Uh, she wanted to know, well, what's your relationship with this filmmaker and what was he doing? And, and I told her everything. And then she was like, but what's very curious about him is he was talking to both sides. So <laughs> for her, for, in the public prosecutor's mind, that was an act of subversion. That was, She was talking to government officials and to opposition mm. and mm. she didn't understand. So, I, I mean, for me, that was a very curious uh, um, uh, experience just to learn that and after that he was very lucky because he was released but it involved very high government officials uh, on a presidential level basically doing uh, uh, backdoor negotiations and then uh, the government got something out of his release but uh, it always struck me what it was if, if this was a Venezuelan what would, what would it would be different you don't have that sort of uh, uh, negotiation power and when I did my film a year later, I, I have to say, if you see the film and you read between the images, you will see that it's a film made out of fear in a way, because I, um, the, the way I, sh I decided to shoot was to abstain from public spaces, because I knew that that could be tricky or that could be dangerous. Cameramen get beaten up if they film things that... Uh, they shouldn't and things like that. So I did make a film. Um, the style of the film was um, a result of that fear. And so, and who, who is your targeted audience? People in Venezuela that you want to open their eyes, or mm. or the international community? Uh, well, I would wish both, but I don't think Venezuelans uh, uh, need to have their eyes opened. I think. I would wish to raise awareness internationally and and and, and talk about the Venezuelan uh, situation. Very few documentary films have been made, or doc Venezuelan filmmakers so far have not really tackled so much the issue of our recent history, and that's changing now. And uh, there's a Venezuelan documentary film festival that was supposed to take place at the end of the month, right after ITVA, and for the first time they had films that were actually critical. None of the filmmakers live in Venezuela, which is also a sign of mm -hmm. uh, what's happening. And the festival had to be canceled because no cinema would 
there to show the films. So public or private, there's a self-censorship. They, they were afraid to show these films. Now, today we are discussing what the international mm. film community can do for filmmakers at risk. In the situation of Venezuela, what would people need? I think one thing that is really important is this, what's happening now. And uh, just knowing that you're not alone. And I, when I was shooting my documentary, I didn't know there was a filmmaking community outside that w maybe cares. And maybe if you know that, you will go in with more daring do and, and you'll take more risks and you'll be more brave because you know it's not going to save you if the, if the government or if someone wants to do you harm or if they want to lock you up or, or, or do anything. But maybe it'll, it, to know that there's people who care and who'll raise their voices and that... That, uh, I think that's already a big step. And I asked my friend, uh, I talked to him yesterday, who was in jail, and asked him, what was, do you think, the most important thing for you? Because I told him about this panel, and he was so glad that this was taking place. And he said the most important thing for him was when he was in jail, uh, there was a letter written by 500 people from the Venezuelan filmmaking community, For, uh, that he didn't know. He knew a few of them, but most of them he didn't know. And they were all. They wrote a letter to the government in support of him to release him. And he said, just to know that there's people out there that mm. care, that gave him strength when he was in jail. So I think that is a very big step. Thank you so much. Maxime, you have the last word. You're from Estonia and you worked with Russian filmmakers, for instance, with uh, Oleg Senstov who is still detained. I think he, didn't he receive 20 years? 20 for, years. For um, his filmmaking and also for other activities. Uh, he's detained in Russia, although um, he was focusing on Ukraine. Um, but you also worked with Alexander, who was murdered, and we heard from Orva in his introduction. Um, he was murdered in the Central African Republic. So really heavy stuff. Um, What do you think the people you work with and you yourself as producer, what do you need from the international community when you work um, with such uh, explosive material? Yeah, I will elaborate a little. Um, uh, Please, go ahead. Yes, uh, I'm an Estonian producer, but I grew up um, and studied in Russia, and I work with Russian filmmakers, as you said, and so I know perfectly well how... Everything works in Russia, and uh, yes, we uh, made many films with Alexander Rostroguev, and uh, uh, we made this film about Alexandrov, and uh, we really were working with um, such, uh, I would say, not dangerous, but uh, uh, acutely political topics, and. Uh, We filmed uh, the leaders of the Russian opposition during the uh, uh, mass protests against uh, Putin's third term in 2013, and we um, uh, filmed the uh, uh, Russian opposition leader Boris Nemtsov, uh, uh, killed right next to the Kremlin uh, a few years ago, and we uh, uh, we filmed the whole trial of Alexandrov uh, uh, in Crimea and. Uh, even in prison, uh, secretly. Uh, we 
filmed some episodes during the annexation of Crimea uh, on Maidan and during the war in Donbass. So, but the thing was knowing how to work with uh, in Russia and with the Russian authorities uh, helped us a lot because uh, we knew how to interact with them. Of course, we uh, uh, once uh, uh, the Russian police searched uh, uh, one of uh, the director's uh, apartment and took all the hard disk drives and uh, uh, they tapped the phones and so on and so forth. But um, I would say I'm strongly against uh, demonizing Putin and uh, the Russian government. Uh, uh, it only boosts Putin's ego. Uh, in fact, uh, he's the one who likes it most. Uh, there is a lot of uh, forces working within the Russian government. This is why we never, none of our uh, directors was uh, ever detained or uh, arrested or something. Uh, they were detained, but it was like... Uh, they were released uh, very soon, and uh, the danger from the Russian government, uh, as it's, it is pictured in media, is not so so big. But and even you know, like Alexander Sergeyev, after making all these films about uh, anti-Putin opposition, being strongly uh, against Putin too, uh, he. Uh, even managed to receive money for his non-political films from the Russian Ministry of Culture because the system is so corrupt and flawed uh, that it's, it's, it doesn't really care. But what happened to him, it was, there are some forces within the Russian government that are really dangerous. And um, he was killed in Central Africa when he was making a film. He was not making it with me, but uh, it was commissioned by a fund sponsored by uh, the exiled Russian oligarch, uh, Khodorkovsky, living in the UK now. Uh, he encountered, encountered something really dangerous. We don't know what happened in Central Africa. But in this case, uh, what happened to him, they were totally unprepared for uh, working in this hostile environment somewhere some, as I said, we know how it works in Russia, but we don't know how it works in Central Africa. And these uh, these Russian mercenaries, uh, mercenaries are illegal in Russia. They're banned, and uh, but they still exist. And uh, when they were trying to investigate uh, uh, this story, uh, they were somewhere where Russian laws and Russian rules don't work. And uh, this is why I think whoever killed them felt that they, um, their hands were loose. And what I want to emphasize here, uh, they were not prepared at all. And they had no security. And they, um, they were thinking that it's, it's going to work like it worked in Russia. And uh, once, you know, I presented uh, one of our films about the Russian position in America, and they had a round table about uh, uh, filmmakers at risk. And I was really surprised how uh, institutionalized uh, these measures are in America and how uh, producers and investors, they uh, 
get ready for making films in such dangerous environments. And this was a very uh, strong contrast to uh, what we had in the case of Rastal Guev. And May what I interrupt by asking you, uh, would it have been very helpful in, in that uh, period when the film was produced that there would have been a platform where filmmakers could learn about yes, how to assess risks, what to do exactly. when you are in a risky situation, those that's, kind of things? Uh, I was at that uh, round table during uh, the production of our film about Alex and Sov. And uh, I just, of course, and I forwarded all the materials I could to the director so he could be ready for anything that could happen to him. And that's that's what I want to tell you. You're right. This is very important for uh, filmmakers in the countries where they don't have uh, enough information, enough uh, security measures, again, to know more about that. And sharing this experience is really important. And even to know that you can have insurance, security, and all this stuff, uh, you can get it somewhere in Europe or, I don't know, America. It is really important. And I'm an Estonian producer, and this is why we worked with uh, these Russian filmmakers, because, of course, they couldn't find uh, uh, financing or something in uh, in Russia, and it really helped them uh, to go to an Estonian producer and to get something from Europe. So, so yes, collaboration, informing people, and uh, things like that, that really help. For me, as an outsider and I uh, listen to you and you tell us the story about Russian filmmakers going unprepared to Central African Republic get murdered there. You mean, that's such a terrible, dramatic situation. What could the international community even do uh, in order to help protect people or get them out of the country uh, you know, before those terrible things happen? Well, I don't know, like, of course, it, I wouldn't say it was their fault, because, but still, uh, it was, I would say it would, was the fault of the people who sent them there to not to, you know, have any you know, backup or something. I mean, like, yeah. they really, there should be some mechanism. Of course, if something happened, if, if they were not killed, but if they were taken hostages, something, there should be some mechanism to get them out of there. And these people who sent them there, they should have been prepared for that, at least. Of course, you cannot do, cannot do anything when people are killed, but, and now the investigation, we cannot even really investigate this case because all these sites that are investigating the case, uh, the oligarch, Kodorkovsky, or the Russian government, or, I don't know, Central African investi investigation, they all are, you know, biased, and you cannot really find the truth and what you could do that. But so I would say for the filmmakers working in such situations, they have to be in contact with institutions that deal with that. And there are a lot of them. I mean, yeah, and definitely, because they are here. Yes. And, and that's why, that's why yeah. yes. The collaboration here is, is real important. Perfect. Thank you so much. Um, but let me just turn to uh, the table. There is another microphone here as well. Maybe. So at this table, we have uh, Andrea Kuhn. Andrea is from the Nuremberg Human Rights Film Festival. 
um, and also from the Human Rights Film Network. And um, we also have uh, Rebecca Lichtenfeld. Uh, we didn't meet uh, before, but um, welcome. Uh, and you are from uh, the Burda Foundation, also related to uh, ITFA. And we have Claire Aguilar. And Claire is from the International Documentary Association. Claire, may I start with you? I saw on your website, for instance, um, in February, you put out a statement in support of Feraz Fayed, uh, a Syrian filmmaker uh, who made a film about the White Helmets. And then he was the victim of a smear campaign, I think, uh, from uh, Assad's um, supporters, but also from Russian trolls. You put out a statement um, to support him and to ask for the attention of the international community. Um, what were the, uh, could you talk to us about why you did that and what you hope to achieve with putting out such a statement? And if there are, from your organization, other means to help filmmakers at risk? Yeah, certainly. Um, uh, Faraz made a film, Less Men in Aleppo, which um, had garnered a lot of acclaim and uh, many prizes and then found himself to be the the victim of Russian trolls for a smear campaign against his character. And um, he was... Um, He was internationally known, and also he happened to be a resident in Los Angeles at the time. And we he really needed the support of IDA, the International Documentary um, Association, to be able to help him not only clear his name, but help him so that um, the, 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 the fake news that had been generated by the trolls wasn't going to... He, he wanted a, an institution to back him up. So as part of what our activities are, and um, I direct the policy slash advocacy part of the organization as well as seeing it as service to filmmakers, not only supporting them in training and education, but also for this kind of support for any any danger, any risk, or um, any kind of um, institutional help they might need. So we thought it would be best to be able to make a statement for that and circulate it amongst our members and also the documentary, the global documentary community. Um, and I think that it had some good effect. Um, later, when the film was very highly acclaimed and nominated for an Academy Award, Um, because uh, his team, his Syrian team, he did not have problems obtaining a visa to come to the awards, but his team had problems coming to the awards, and the State Department wouldn't issue a visa to his producer and cinematographer. We helped to um, rally some of our uh, friends in Congress, uh, Rory Kennedy, who is um, the... Um, The Academy of Motion Pictures um, Board of Governors helped us to, with uh, with uh, getting letters to Joe Kennedy, and we were able to obtain visas for his team. So that's part of the work we do. So they were able to attend the awards. Unfortunately, they did not. It was it was a, a film that um, got such high profile from that. So I think that's part of our mission to do that. Thank you, um, Andrea, um, part of the Human Rights Film Network. Um, when you hear the filmmakers at risk, um, are those situations that you come across doing your work? And do you have a specific response to that? Well, we in the Human Rights Film Network, we try to set up 
it's not an emergency line, but uh, there's many of my colleagues here. It's Julia from Bologna, Florencia from Argentina, Maria from Western Sahara, Spain, uh, Andre from Prague. So it's, I'm just here as a representative from the network. Uh, we try to respond if we can. If somebody gets knowledge of something, then we as a network um, share among ourselves and try at least to write a letter of support. But of course, also in my own work and the Nuremberg International Human Rights Film Festival, yes, of course, we come across, I mean, the films that we are interested in kind of bring it with them, as with most documentary film festivals anyway, that some of the filmmakers might have risked something and might be in a difficult spot um, when the film reaches us. So it's two things. Um, and I'm saying this uh, in, in a, as abstractly as possible. We are a smaller film festival, so we have maybe less uh, spotlight on us. That also allows us to maybe be helpful. Um, we do invite people to our festivals, and maybe sometimes we can push invitations. Um, and that might be helpful for someone to leave a situation that they're uncomfortable in. Uh, but we also try in our festival to be very aware that just because someone made a critical film, they might not be in a position to speak about it in the terms that we would prefer as a human rights film, maybe, human rights issues. So like I know in China, some, some of our friends, uh, Chinese filmmakers, they prefer social issue because it's less controversial. Um, so we try very hard to respect all these uh, these questions and we also by now have learned that just because someone brings their film and the film is critical that they might not want to or be able to speak critically about the political aspects of the film. So for us it's become part of our job uh, not just to to try to support people that are in danger but the first step is not to create problems for the filmmakers that come to us. If someone tells us, or maybe I'm uncomfortable, I'm at the airport, but there's something strange going on, we tell them, stay where you are. You just follow your instinct. Forget about the, the ticket. We don't care. Don't go there. If somebody tells us, I'm ready to talk about the film, but only in these terms, respect that. Um, we tell journalists to respect that. We tell audience not to ask specific questions if that's necessary to protect people. So it's both uh, we try to have a response network um, from our group of 42 film festivals so we can work together and, and create awareness. We also try to use our individual contacts because each one of us has political contacts, uh, press contacts, and that kind of stuff. But I think also one of the aspects for film festival is not to bring, um, take, to, to make people take risks at our festivals. Mm. They might expose themselves and uh, to try to prevent that. Do you have the experience that when you are working on a case like that, somebody at risk, that you, um, while you are working on it, you discover that other organizations are also working on it and there was no, let's say, collaboration? Well, I think in our world, the, I, the, the, the good thing is that there's a lot of contact. There's a lot of networks that are existing. So uh, I don't... Yes, yeah, sometimes you feel a bit left alone in a specific case, but also there's a lot of solidarity that can be activated. Um, this has been the case with ITFA in particular in a number of cases, um, which is also good because it helps us smaller festivals to also tie into a bigger campaign um, or at least to exchange. We know each other, so we can just also be a phone call away. Someone might coordinate. I mean... Laurine here from Docs for Sale has been one of these people. It's been coordinating an entire campaign. So uh, 
so not to overburden the person who was the contact maybe for the person in danger. Um, you can't just every one of us call them. You could call Aurin and ask for, for the latest update, say what we're doing, is this a good way to go? So there is collaboration. Rebecca, now we turn to you. Um, the Berda Foundation, you work a lot with filmmakers. Um, having listened to the conversation, are there uh, certain aspects you recognize and you think, hey, we should focus on that, we, do, we should do things differently, or... Hello. Yep. Yeah, hi. So definitely, I think as film funders, we think a lot about our ethical responsibility to the filmmakers and also the protagonists in the film. We've had several examples, uh, instances where we've had to, or the protagonist has needed to get out of the country um, and, and so other instances where that was planned for well in advance um, and, and with our support. So we've done a couple of things and we've been reactive because we're learning as we go. Um, and we've done a lot of this with our partners at Doc Society. But, you know, in one of our funds, we've built in uh, support for hostile environment training. Um, and in some cases, when people have applied for a grant, they haven't necessarily realized that that might even be what they need. But we've done, uh, you know, with with assessments of the, the danger they might be in, then we would recommend that and fund it, obviously. Um, and so uh, similarly, we've had an example where, uh, you know, the filmmakers were uh, under trial for, for libel, but also at the same time we had to get one of the protagonists out of the country. And we felt like, well, we're not just going to fund the film and then leave people stranded here. So we froze the fund until we understood what the cost was of the legal case so that we would be able to help them in that and then also help get that person out of the country protagonist out of the country um, but what's I think the safe and secure uh, uh, what Doc Society has been working on is important because this hasn't felt coordinated um, and that's the idea really with that is is um, where there's a manual where filmmakers can go through and ask questions and understand a bit more about uh, where their vulnerabilities are but also then funders and it's not so that funders then say well I'm not touching that project but in fact quite the opposite because then funders can pool their resources and enable that support before it gets into a critical situation where you can't return home or you're, you have to suddenly on the fly get your protagonist out of the country and you have no money to do that. Um, and so, and also check-in systems are really, really important and we like to make sure that those are in place. We've had situations where it's even films we haven't funded. I think there's someone I saw just came in the room who found themselves in a terrible situation and they don't know who to call. And, and so... Um, I think that's the beauty of when was safe and secure if there also can be pooled resources of activating an entire network, like not just one, but your network on top of a funder network on top of another network is, is priceless, yeah. Um, you were talking about uh, legal aid. Um, is there a network of lawyers that you can tap into? Yeah, I mean, well, so... We at, at the Bertha Foundation, we actually have a network of human rights lawyers from a, a other program that we run. Um, so we do crisscross there. But one of the th the things they're trying to build at Safe and Secure is our particularly lawyers who work on these kinds of issues around uh, defamation and um, things that maybe filmmakers haven't work through entirely or they don't have the proper insurance or things like that and that's part of Safe and Secure as well where they're they're activating a pro bono network of lawyers to do that and of course at Bertha although it's not as uh, institutionalized this is more bespoke for our particular projects and my colleague is up here Peter if any of you want to speak to him after who runs our legal program where we do on a case-by-case -case basis uh, try to assist across um, 
the law side as well. Thank you. Uh, let's uh, turn to the next table because we have only one hour left for the rest of the discussion. Um, and we have a lot of interesting guests. So table three is with organizations of filmmakers um, who have a focus also on artists um, at risk. And so um, I would like to ask uh, Julie Trebeau from Artist at Risk Connection from PEN America. Um, I saw on your website that, um, for instance, there's this writer photographer from Bangladesh, um, whom I happen to know uh, through my work for the Prince Klaus Fund, a wonderful guy, and he is arrested, detained, and now I think he's released temporarily. Um, but um, he was really at risk, and you guys work on those kind of cases. Um, Pen America is very known for helping, supporting, providing protection to writers at risk. Um, but then you expanded the program. Can you talk us through why you did that and why? Um, what was your assessment about the need to help other artists accept uh, writers? Thank you. Um, thanks to everyone and thanks for this uh, very interesting panel. Um, I think what happened uh, with uh, the writers are very common to any type of artist dis artistic disciplines. What we realize is like also with um, the digital era and, and I mean the birth of internet, artists are wearing multiple hats. We can be a photographer, a writer, a creator. This Bangladeshi uh, writer is also a creator and a photographer. So it's very difficult today to put someone in one kind of case, I will say, in one category. So it tends to be much more blurry. And um, we were receiving, I mean, like Pen International with all the chapters of Pen, like Pen America, but there are many other. Uh, we were receiving calls from writers. We have a writers at risk program, but we were receiving more and more calls from artists. And we saw that there was a gap in pretty much where you're all describing is um, there was not really a one-stop shop where we could find all the resources for artists. So the program that I am managing is really a connection. It's uh, funded by the Mellon Foundation and the idea is really to gather all the resources, like resources that provided by organizations like you, but most of them human rights organizations who are providing direct support to artists and human rights defenders. And it's multiple things. It's like legal assistance, it's resettlement, it's asylum. It's what you were saying, Rebecca, it's legal assistance. I think it's a very important resource for artists. And what we, we notice is there is a crackdown on filmmaker, clearly, and not only, you know, on the country you're coming from, but generally in many different countries, in Vietnam, in, in you know, in South Africa. So we, we could definitely, so that for filmmakers specifically, because we are helping to connect artists to those resources, that's really, a, we are connector, kind of a matchmaker, um, Filmmakers are mostly requested advocacy. I mean, that was what we are uh, actually seeing. And this, our ability to coordinate effort on advocacy, on public awareness, on campaign is extremely important for the reason you point out, um, 
uh, Tula, but also Nwang, on you know our ability to respond when you are at risk and quickly and quickly not being you know leaving you out of you know this protection network. And I think you point something out very important, Maxim, was like how to build a safety network before a kind of a prevention, you know, like how to make sure that you know where you're going and you're going to face and you know uh, what to do and the organization that can support you are already aware of your firm, are already aware of what you're doing. Because I think that's that's what I'm seeing in less than a year managing this project is like we arrive sometimes really too late and it's very difficult to mobilize in such a very sudden way. And I think Shahidul Alam from Bangladesh is a good example. He, he stayed more than 100 days in prison. And mm-hmm. so that's, that's how... That's what we try yeah. to do. Thank you. Uh, next to you is Marita and uh, Ivor. Um, and you're both from Artists at Risk and Perpetuum Mobile. And I read in uh, the files that you have some kind of residency for artists at risk to, you know, to retreat and to um, stay there for a while. Can you talk to us about it? And would that be something that would be interesting for filmmakers at risk? Yes, it's uh, really shortly. It's uh, Addis at Risk is an institution which is based in Berlin and Helsinki, but we have residencies in six cities. And we are actually hosting uh, filmmakers at risk uh, since 2015. We have currently two filmmakers at risk in a residency. Uh, you won't see their names on our website because uh, also uh, filmmakers and also artists can select to be anonymous for security reasons because they hope to go back. So we are working on that field already. You might know it's the first uh, filmmaker we hosted uh, was Issa Tuma from Aleppo who made a film nine days from my uh, uh, window uh, in, in Aleppo, and he's actually back in Aleppo. We hosted him twice. He was in uh, in Helsinki in 2014. He approached us because at the time there was no electricity in Aleppo, and he wanted to digitalize his archives and make the first rough cut, and, and he found the Dutch production company, actually, and he went back. But we assessed his situation later on and got him out, and now he's back in Aleppo. So we talk with uh, about him with the name because he agreed to do so. That's really important. In, in Issa's case, that's possible. And actually, it's the concrete proposal is that, that uh, we are going to Haag to meet, uh, meet uh, Shelter Cities Initiative. And we are already talking with them that it would be great to have artists at risk residency here in the Netherlands. We don't have a node. We don't have a residency here. And it would be great to work with the film festivals in doing so. And our focus is exactly there that we react really fast and we try to get people out before they are imprisoned. So it's basically, it's kind of, we work also as a fast reaction force to get people out. But Ivor can take it from there. Yeah, Ivor, um, can you t- tell us how long can artists stay in the residency? Would it be in, indefinitely or just a few weeks or months? 
Yeah, we, we do. Uh, as Marita said, the, the kind of nuts and bolts uh, when it's already too late. I mean, I really would uh, encourage all this prophylactic work, if you like uh, the term, um, to stop this from happening. But there's go always going to be artists who take an extra risk, go the extra mile and do something that's out of order. And I, I see we, we hear here, Claire mentioned getting the visas. We do that kind of stuff. So it's it's all the way from before they arrive to through their residency to after. And the residency can be anything from, say, two weeks for a Vietnamese pop artist who wants to release her album while she's out of the country and see how it plays out in Vietnam and then come back if everything's okay to 24 months in the case of an artist who just can't go back to Egypt because his colleagues are currently being tortured and beaten and, and could face a death penalty. So there's, there's a whole range of different... Um, uh, so we, we accept musicians filmmakers, uh, visual artists, we're curators in the visual art field. And so I think it's important to to think about what happens once the, you know, uh, if I may, shit hits the fan. So w what happens after, you know, it's really too late to, to, to stop it from happening is you have to have a network of people that receive them. And it's not only money, as has been said. I think there is, there is money there. The question is how, how can they arrive? If you just give them the key and say, you're safe, that's not enough. You need to put them in a context, not only a legal context, a medical context, trauma, and so on, but you also have a, an artistic context I think is really important. And I think this idea of working with film festivals and film organizations so that they land within a, a kind of professional context is super important. And they don't come as asylum seekers, refugees that have to start from the very bottom and, and just you know, find their way on their own. I think that's, the context is really key. For me, it's interesting to see that I used to work for a human rights watch and whenever there were human rights defenders at risk, we knew exactly whom to call. Um, for instance, you were mentioning uh, shelter cities. Uh, in the Netherlands, we do have shelter cities for uh, human rights defenders at risk. They can stay there for a maximum three months period to cool off and then to go back. It's not the idea that they could ask for asylum, but simply to get them out of a volatile situation and then, uh, you know, um, give them some networking opportunities and when they go back to be safe and, and there are people then from shelter cities who could really see if they are safe and if not to use that network. Um, for me, it's interesting to see that actually you are working with filmmakers, but also with other artists, that there is not such a platform that a filmmaker would know exactly, okay, let's call this person or that organization or that platform. Um, so when I go now to uh, the Ford Foundation uh, and Kyra Mertes, um, I saw that Just Films um, is supporting um, filmmakers who also work in these uh, conditions. Um, is there something from the Ford Foundation's point of view that you like to contribute to the discussion? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you. Um, thanks to IDFA for creating and Rotterdam for creating this platform. It's a really important uh, discussion. I think we're all aware of that. I'll say from the Just Films perspective, we've tried to identify gaps in knowledge. Um, and so for Fort Foundation, which has 10 offices around the world and a 70-year history in social justice funding, we're probably one of the largest funders of the movement networks that we see at work around the world today. Um, and what is 
much more highly developed uh, than the filmmaker safety and security is, is as you're mentioning, the, the human rights defenders protocols. And so one of the things that coming into Just Films I wanted to do is identify what are the protocols that exist, both for journalists and human rights defenders, um, that are already in place that maybe we can begin to understand and borrow from for filmmakers and begin to apply some of those learnings as we develop out a network, as our filmmakers, our documentary filmmakers, begin to uh, take on the role of journalists in a way um, and are the truth tellers. They're coming more and more under threat. And this is a perfect, you're giving perfect examples of this. And, and they're very undertrained, uh, under aware. Uh, of um, both the um, needs, so you find people going into countries without proper awareness training or even thinking that they need training uh, about protocols in that country. So we uh, focused on digital, and I'll bring up digital because it hasn't been brought up as much here, and we worked with Freedom of the Press Foundation. We first did a scan about digital hygiene um, and safety and security. Freedom of the Press Foundation is a relatively new foundation in um, the States, and they developed a, a whole training protocol for short modules, longer trainings, embedded trainings, uh, film teams, and individual filmmakers um, for digital hygiene practices so that the information can remain secure. And so we see this as a uh, um, setting up resources both for the uh, makers, for the protagonists, as uh, uh, Bex was mentioning, um, but also the information. And then I'm going to add one more thing that we haven't talked about, and that is the way that institutions are being targeted spaces um, like film festivals and institutions that work with filmmakers, especially in the most repressive of circumstances, they're being targeted as well um, in order to shut down the possibility of filmmakers being able to work. So it's an indirect um, approach to uh, stopping filmmakers from being able to do the work that they need to do. So and this how is, are these institutions, uh, film festivals, targeted? Well, I think we may hear some stories about that, but you know, everything from the government actually shutting them down. And we know this from Russia, from China. We have examples. We're seeing, starting to see examples now in Turkey. And historically, we've seen examples of this, you know, under military dictatorships, um, you know, under all kinds of regimes. We've seen this in India. Um, and just an example from the Ford Foundation that people may know, um, and then I'll speak a little bit about where we want to put resources, is the situation in India with the arrival of the Modi government. Um, it, it, all foreign entities that were funding in India were basically frozen. Our, our accounts were frozen, um, and there was an investigation of every single one of those to determine whether or not they were um, providing sufficient foreign Inter, inter, in influence that they were actually intervening in the national interest. And if that was found to be the case, then they were closed. So Ford Foundation had to spend two and a half years actually not granting at all in India and until very recently with extremely detailed negotiations with the Indian government were we able to actually reopen. The office never actually closed, but reopened the accounts. Now that had a massive effect on all kinds of organizations, including filmmakers. We were not able to fund filmmakers for that time in India, and we had been funding Indian filmmakers before then. So that's just a perfect example of this sort of um, ripple effect, um, you know, and this targeting that can happen that has real consequences for the filmmakers that we want to work with. So for us right now, just briefly, what, what um, we're trying to do in Just Films is, again, lay out 
out the landscape, identify where there are gaps uh, in resources, and then try to understand how we can best make some uh, contribution because we can't do it alone, but some contribution, some framework, hopefully that other funders can join us on. Um, and this is why we look to this room, actually, to understand what the best, you know, is it... Is it safe and secure, you know, uh, uh, asylum spaces? Is it physical spaces? Uh, things like sanctuary cities? Is it funds? Is it legal? Is it visa? Is it about uh, mob mobility um, and understanding how mobility works or doesn't work increasingly? Um, so these are the questions that we're raising up and doing some research around. And then hopefully we'll be able to identify places to put uh, funding that, that hopefully will have a long-term effect that is sustained. And as I say, that's a framework that other donors and foundations can join. Thank you so much. Um, next to you is Ed O'Donovan. Um, and you work for Frontline Defenders, I think based in Dublin, in Ireland. I remember from my Human Rights Watch time that when our human rights defender was at risk, there was a phone number, a helpline, uh, 24 hours, um, and people could just call and get help. Does it still function like that? And uh, can you yeah. talk us a little bit about um, sure, how yeah. it works? Well, to take you up on that immediately, yeah, we have a 24-hour support number in five languages, um, which offers round-the-clock support to human rights defenders when they find themselves in a situation of risk. Um, so this may mean somebody has a colleague who's been detained and they want immediate advocacy, or somebody is in need of some financial support for legal fees or medical um, support if they've been attacked as a result of their of their human rights work. So it's one of the things that we do to tr try to provide protection and security to human rights defenders at risk. Um, in, in addition to advocacy, there's training. We've, we've heard a lot this afternoon about risk assessment and protection planning, and it's one of the speciality trainings that we provide to human rights defenders um, where we walk through with them the situations of risk that they're facing as a result of their work, the context that they're working in, and then map out with them their potential allies and the steps they should be taking if they feel themselves in a in an increasingly dangerous position of risk. In addition to that, as, as Cara mentioned, we're also looking at the digital security side of things. So working with human rights defenders in repressive environments to show them how to encrypt their information, how to circumvent censorship, how to securely delete information from their computers. More generally, I think one thing I would say about the, the documentary makers community i mean i think for those of you who are working on human rights issues it's very important that you self-identify as human rights defenders because it do, it does open up this network of resources um once that you realize that yes i am doing human rights work and i'm at risk of that because of that and there are a number of organizations like ours who use specific frameworks to carry out, carry out advocacy at UN level, at EU level, but also to provide uh, funding and, and training. Um, and I think it can be quite easy just to overlook that aspect that you would see yourself as a journalist or a, or a documentary maker, not necessarily as a human rights activist. And the crackdown that we're hearing about today, I think, is more reflective of the overall tightening of civil society space around the world. Um, just yesterday, before I, I left Dublin for this talk, I was looking at the Committee to Protect Journalists website, and they have recorded 45 killings of journalists this year. Um, and these are figures that we've seen going up in terms of the targeting of, of human rights defenders around the world. So we are working in an increasingly dangerous environment, and things are only going to get worse, unfortunately. Um, so this, this panel discussion, and hopefully what will 
emerge out of this um, couldn't come at a better time? Well, I think it's interesting what you said about um, filmmakers having to see themselves also as uh, human rights defenders because um, based on my experience, when uh, you put in an application, not uh, specifically in your organization, but the first question is, is this a human rights defender? And when you say yes, then you have to describe what kind of human rights work they were doing. If you would say, well... Uh, this person made a documentary or whatever, um, it becomes already a little bit uh, vague, a little bit fluid. Um, so I, I really support your idea that um, artists and uh, filmmakers should see themselves also as human rights defenders, but it also requires from the other organizations and uh, let's say an open view to filmmakers as being also um, human rights defenders. I mean, I think there is more flexibility around the concepts now as we are seeing increasingly what we have previously called the second line being targeted. So lawyers of human rights defenders, journalists documenting arrests of human rights defenders, doctors treating injured protesters, um, and filmmakers exposing human rights violations um, would very much be seen, um, from our point of view anyway, as, as human rights defenders deserving of that support if they're at risk because of that work. Thank you so much. And then uh, I think our last uh, guest, and then we will turn to the audience for a Q&A, uh, is uh, Christine uh, Miedema from Amnesty International. Um, and you've been working uh, with filmmakers at risk. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how Amnesty International is working on uh, these kind of cases? Yeah, we of course we work um, for people that are at risk uh, regardless of their profession. So it could be filmmakers, it could be journalists, it could be activists in any way, um, people under threat, people's, uh, people whose human, human rights are threatened. Um, so sometimes filmmakers come into our lives, come into our activism, and for me, uh, very recently, or in the last three years, it has been Ali Aksentsov, who very clearly... Um, is now being imprisoned for his activism and he happens to be a filmmaker. And interestingly, that brought actually the filmmaking community also in my path and that has been a great experience. It's been wonderful to see how the filmmaking community has rallied behind Andy Aksensov, how many statements there have been, how I personally have been approached by um, IFFR to do an action together. And you see that indeed on well, we, we do the work that we always do. Um, and of course, in that, we are sometimes heard and sometimes we are seen as the usual suspect. Like, okay, Amnesty is protesting. Yeah, we were expecting that. So it's wonderful that we now see uh, filmmakers protesting. And that is, of course, a different sound and a sound that might not be immediately expected and therefore might have more, um, more effect. Um, and then I was also uh, very much uh, um, touched by what was said in the beginning that uh, if this happens in the filmmaking community, people are looking for what can we do? And I think that is something that we should work on together, that now uh, that we have this case, and of course, Andiak's case is not the only one. We have cases in Iran or in Tunisia or in Azerbaijan, um, that when these cases happen, that we know how to find each other. And that it's not 
uh, something we have to reinvent every time and that it's not only ad hoc, but that we indeed know that we know you have the resources, that we know if somebody is really at risk and needs to get out, we can get to you. That, uh, um, yeah, that we have these contacts. And, and it, it has been a very good experience for me, except for the fact that RDX situation is terrible, that we are making these, these links, we should just make sure that they stay and that they indeed are not only linked to a certain case, but that they are more general. Thank you so much, Christy. So now we have uh, the last half hour um, to um, discuss this topic, uh, solidarity with filmmakers at risk with you in the audience. Um, is there somebody who would like to uh, respond? And please, if you grab the microphone, mention your name if you like, and maybe the organization you work for. And please keep it short, because I already see seven, six, no, seven hands. Um, let's start with you. Yes. Thank you. This is such an interesting discussion. Thank you for organizing it. My name is Maria Carrion. I've been working with uh, uh, filmmakers at risk and media activists from Western Sahara, a territory occupied by Morocco for 43 years. These filmmakers um, uh, wear many different hats. They're media activists. They're they work with outlawed collectives. Um, sometimes they act as liaisons to international film crews who come in to uh, surreptitiously film inside Western Sahara. And they face all of these uh, risks and problems that you've been discussing here at the panel. Um, but I want to ask you about uh, one particular problem that uh, we encounter over and over again. I've worked at Fisahara at the Western Sahara Film Festival for five years. And we distribute a lot of um, Western Sahara-themed th films uh, internationally, and uh, what we find is often uh, there's pressure. There's the long arm of the Moroccan government that pressures film festivals. Uh, sometimes it might be film departments or other departments in universities, especially those who, who are, um, are receiving funding from either Morocco or its allies, and a lot of films get cancelled at the last minute, get pulled from festivals, and so all the risks that these activists take to have their voices heard um, sometimes, uh, you know, result in, in this censorship. And I wanted to know, what are your ideas for trying to counter this sort of um, censorship, which uh, Morocco is not the only country in the world doing this now in the world of culture and film? May I ask you if you have a specific person in mind you want to ask the question to? <laughs> <laughs> Not really, because I don't. This hasn't really okay, been well, addressed. Let's turn to the panel. Is there somebody so who would like to answer this question, Ivor? I, I kind of would like to answer that question. I don't have a direct answer, but in, in also relationship to this question of how artists can be seen as human rights defenders, and I think it's very important to kind of use that existing framework, but also to see the differences, because artists are, as you say, in a very different position. They cannot be directly threatened as humans, but uh, their films, their freedom of expression can be threatened. And that's a, a different type of um, situation. And also, once they come out of the country, let's say that they can't go back to their country of origin, they are not in the same position of uh, just gathering facts and publishing articles or making another documentary. Um, they're, they're producing a, something in a context where they need colleagues, whereas a human rights defender 
can be still connected via their their locals on the ground. Artists need an artistic context. I think this 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 will also relate to the next session. I hope that you're planning in in, in uh, about feature film, where the art side of things makes it a very different story. I don't know if that helps answer your question. Um, I saw some other. Oh my goodness! Yeah, they're in the middle. Hi, uh, my name is Lula. I'm from Brazil, and uh, I just I don't want to ask anybody. Just want to share with you, and maybe you guys should put in your radar because we just got elected a guy, a person <laughs> that uh, a racist, a homophobic, a pro-violence, and we, me and Natasha here, we have a documentary that's in the um, in the festival. It's called Police Killing, and um, well, the name says, and uh, and one of the guy's idea is to make it legal, the kind of uh, problem we have in our film. So uh, we don't know exactly what's going to happen in the next year in Brazil. I I also shoot fictional films over almost 25 years. I've been shooting favelas, and uh, we are from Rio. Which is a uh, you know a place known by uh, not to, not to be very safe, and I've been there shooting favelas and with police and uh, criminals as well uh, along these 25 years. But now we don't know what's going to happen, and uh, we're facing this uncertainty, uh, you know, horizon. And uh, I I hope not to have to to call anybody here for help, but. I think Brazil should be in the map of uh, this risky area, and I, you know, I'll be very short here and share with Natasha here, my my partner, wife, and a filmmaker. And I mean, I'm more of a filmmaker. She's more. I mean, we are everything, <laughs> but uh, I. She's more. She she dedicates herself as an activist in a day by day life. So, thanks everybody. Well, thank you so much for sharing your concern. And uh, Brazil is really on the map, not only on uh, the map of human rights organizations, but it should also be uh, on the map of artists, filmmakers. And uh, we should really follow what's happening, because usually when a dictator comes to power, it's um, minority groups and artists who have to pay the first price, and then the rest of society will follow. So thanks very much for that. I, I wanted saw, to add, because he said he doesn't yeah, need I help wanted to right ask, now. Are you Natasha? Yeah, yeah. Okay, you have to floor. <laughs> so he said he doesn't need help, but I think I do need help. We do need help right now, um, because um, I became an activist, a human rights activist, by following the mothers who had their sons killed by the police, and there's no way to stop being and um, going forward with them. So they demand me, and I decided, you know, to be with them after the film. And they're at risk, and so am I. Everybody's very worried of what's going to happen. We've been threatened online, and all the mothers have been threatened. And so we we want to ask you for help. I think and I want to shoot another documentary next year. So we'll be there filming. We'll be there risking our lives. What I feel that is that we don't know what we're facing right now. So how should we measure the risk we're facing? 
you know, because people from favelas, they're at risk every day because there's a police officer with a huge gun pointing at them. So they're kind of fearless, you know, So, but I fear for them. And it's very hard to convince people in the field that they're at risk. Like we've been talking about digital security and they say, ha, they already know who we are. But I'm like... <laughs> Come on. So it's it's very hard to measure what we should do right now because we know it's going to get much worse. We know we're going to have human rights defenders such as Marielle Franco, who was a human rights defender, killed. And she was a friend of mine. And she was with the mothers. And she she helped us to do our film. So, you know, how can we measure and what can we do right now? I just wanted to, to add on, on that aspect because right after the election we have also an emergency response for, for artists at risk and all creative type of, of, uh, of form uh, and receive immediately right after the election free call from Brazilian uh, musician writers who receive, you know, uh, as you did, a uh, targeted message online. Um, I think we have just to be you have to be aware that there are people that can you know help at least to kind of prevent you on the digital aspect but not only on the legal aspect so so please be in touch we have we have an encrypted form we uh, can definitely you know give you some some resources but I think you touch on a very important point that in a politically unstable situation you don't really know what will become of the freedom of expression, for instance, for filmmakers. And so it's important that um, there is something uh, or some organization you can turn to immediately once you have defined this is the risk I'm facing. So thank you very much for that. Can I just comment really shortly? If you yes. go to artists at risk site, we have the information out in Portuguese. We just got it also translated. So kind of check it. Yeah, check it out if, if there is really necessity to get out fast, if it gets that bad and also there's other information. Also translate it and please distribute it to your colleagues as well if needed. It's, it's there. Thank you so much. I see on this side of the room and then we will turn back to you again. Uh, can the microphone go to? I've got one. Oh, you have the microphone. Yeah. You know, I, I don't it's, it's see you. It's very smoothly arranged here. Sorry, I'll step into the light um, out of the shadows. My name is Peter. I'm a colleague of Becky's at the Bertha Foundation. Uh, before I joined Becky, I actually ran an organisation that provides um, legal aid and legal defence to journalists around the world. Um, I have like two observations and I'll be very brief. My first observation is that there are a lot of resources available to filmmakers in need. Um, you know, all of you around the edges here, um, there's some other people in the room here as well, isn't there? I know, but from experience, one of the challenges that, that we have as the organizations that, that can potentially help is to get the word out, you know, to, to do that kind of outreach. If you're a filmmaker, you don't necessarily know that we exist. Why would you know that we exist? Um, one of the things that we also struggle with is that we operate very much in an Anglophone world. Um, there's, you know, a fair bit of information available in, in, in French, there's some Lucifone, but if you're a Russian filmmaker, you're not going to Google in English, help, I'm, I, I need a lawyer, you know, why would you do that? And that sort of, so, so that is 
Well, there's two observations, actually. The first observation is around outreach, and we really need to redouble our efforts and, and, and make sure that the people that need our help know that the help is available. But the other thing that really needs to be done is to then make that help available in the countries where it's needed to indigenize our efforts. And that's, and that's for a couple of reasons. One of them is, is because of trust. Again, why would a Russian trust somebody in America to go and help them? You know, leave aside the Russian-American kind of political dynamics there. It, 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 trust. You're going to trust somebody in your own country way before you trust somebody else, um, you know, outside your own country. The other reason that it needs to be available in the countries where it's available is just accessibility, you know. Um, so I would really focus on those two things. You know, Cara as well, I would focus, that's where I would focus, is mapping the countries where it's needed most and then making sure that assistance is available there and then making sure that word actually gets out. Thank you so much. I see that Andrea would like to respond uh, to you and then we turn back. I think you also had a question, right? Um, yes, no? actually, it's a response to Sarah and actually a call to action to all of us smaller film festivals. You know, it's great you have support um, for to get people... Um, asylum in a, in a bigger structure that you have for human rights defenders in place but we all know that at least here we are in the European Union and uh, it becomes very difficult for human rights defenders to even get here to claim asylum um, so there is a larger structure and people who can help you with that but sometimes it just needs to be a little bit under the radar and it needs to be from our community and as you said you have to think about the inside and the outside and one thing that we smaller festivals, I think, have going for us, and probably not the human rights film festivals, because we're a bit on the on the radar on those issues, but we can do this just well. Sometimes it's just very helpful to send out that invitation. And it can have nothing to do with the situation that person is in, but be creative and just invent um, reasons why someone would have to come. Uh, it doesn't always work, but it can mm. work, and I know it has worked. Um, a big festival, make a big splash, but that's not going to help get the visa because the very reason why people need visa is why they don't get any, hmm. right? To be, look at the political realities that we're facing. But with film festivals, with film professionals, there's probably a panel discussion that we need someone and it will not be about the political situation in Turkey. It will be about maybe, I don't know, social media. So... The smaller one of us, we, we can do that. And I think we need to step up in those cases if somebody needs to get out and if you get a call for help. Um, yes, it's not legal, but who cares? And um, we have those mechanisms. We can do that. Thank you so much. Uh, oh, gosh. Let me turn to the first row here. And I then, had, I just wanted, oh, you have the microphone already. Just wanted, I do have the microphone. Oh, I'm not sure if it works. Does I it work? Want, okay. I want one, one little comment, and I think Cara has another comment. You, what you say is so true. I mean, I have a case of a Burundi filmmaker, documentary filmmaker, like a few months ago. He needed desperately to get out. And through a film festival in Brussels, we got him out. And that was the way. It's totally illegal. It's totally what I should not say in public. But uh, but that's, that's this type of resources that we have to put in place and be sure that when someone really is in really distress, we can put this kind of emergency call together and not also being targeted. I think also what you say, Peter, about capacity building in the country, it's extremely 
important and we should have more fun available to do that and um, empower those people to do it and not as you say coming from you know Europe or the global north if I will say and, and implement things that that sometimes doesn't work so but this is a very good example because it happened all the time thank you first row <laughs> yes hi um my name is amelia mello i'm also from brazil <laughs> and um in in august in nicaragua i was arrested and detained and interrogated and deported and um The people that were really active while I was in detention were the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights and um, the embassy from Brazil. It was before <laughs> we knew that we had a Nazi <laughs> president. And um, and um, the, the Nicaraguan Filmmakers Association. And the Nicaraguan Filmmakers Association put out a statement um, in, in support of my release and, and as did the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. And when I was released, I then thought maybe it would be a good idea if other doc societies and, and organizations around the world would support the Nicaraguan Filmmakers Association because I thought it would make a big difference to them and to the efforts going on inside of the country. And I wrote letters and emails to people I thought might be know <laughs> how to do this or communicate this to people. And it was as if like it didn't, make sense to them what I was asking. <laughs> like there was no mechanism in place um, to put out statements or, um, or even to clarify what the role of filmmaking and documentary making was in this situation. So I would really encourage that to be somewhat formalized within institutions that, that, that there is, that there's a really firm stance, that there's a role for documentary associations and organizations and funders and that these statements can make a big difference um, when they happen and that they can happen more regularly um, and not just, you know, the Oscar-nominated um, <laughs> person, but the, the people who are on the ground making, making um, films in situations as they happen. Well, that seems to me a very important uh part of, let's say, the future work of uh, the filmmaking community, um, because it's very, actually, I, I don't like the word protocol, but there should be some kind of steps one could take or, you know, so that people know this is what we could do in a situation that is very volatile. Thank you. Um, um. Yes. I and I, I see all kind of signs. We have only a few more minutes left, yeah, so I please be brief. I just have a very, very quick, call, quick uh, question. I'm Julia from the Human Rights uh, Night uh, Festival in Italy and the Human Rights Film Network. I just would like to know uh, how to continue following this uh, with all of you after. If you, well, this is a talk. Uh, you said there will be something else in Rotterdam. But how can we, I mean, there's a lot of organizations here. It would be nice if there was a, a follow-up, uh, maybe, I don't know, a document that can, we can circulate with all of that or a website or something. Well, that would be a perfect last question for the director of the Rotterdam Film Festival, how we will continue. So you think about uh, your answer already. Um, the, uh, 
No, not now. At the end. It's the last question. So one row behind you. Give the microphone to her. Yes. Um, thank you so much for this very genuine panel. Um, I just want to share an observation. I'm a Turkish filmmaker. And sometimes safety becomes the elephant in the room when we're pitching to people and when we're talking to funders or broadcasters. And sometimes we as filmmakers find ourselves in a situation where um, when they ask, is it safe? we have to say, of course it's safe, because otherwise um, they may not jump in and they, they may not punt, because an unsafe film would equal a film that's not going to be able to be made. So I think, as filmmakers as well, um, we have to think much more about safety, but I think as funders and broadcasters, perhaps we should be using a different language or we should be approaching safety from a different perspective than, is this film going to be made? Thank you. Um, yeah, over there. Hi, uh, my name is Riley Dowd. I'm the director and producer of an upcoming film called Dreams of Dara, which follows a young Syrian mother, uh, first in Jordan and then back to Syria. And she went back to look for her missing husband who was detained by the Assad regime. And just a few months ago, we were able to get her out, getting her a visa to testify at the UN. And uh, since then, she's gone to Germany to try and seek asylum with her daughters. And her asylum case was actually rejected. So she's appealing that now. Um, my question for you is, what sort of institutions or what's really in place to help the actual subjects of films when it comes to, um, we're still in the rough cut stage, but getting ready to apply to festivals? Um, how or what is in place for them to really be prepared for kind of that uh, spotlight in a way? when it comes specifically to speaking about human rights. I see that Ivor wants to answer that question. I, I think, <clears throat> I don't have a direct answer to the, the whole question, but I think I'd like to elaborate on this fast reaction that I, I really, really think it's great that you're thinking as a community and you're thinking as filmmakers going to get, getting together to be in solidarity with one another, but you can make a lot of mistakes if you don't know uh, the rules of the game. So, for example, if you um, put out an invitation, you, you invite the artist or the filmmaker, and then the person declares asylum, that person might never be able to go back. That might destroy that person's career in their home country. So, if you're really thinking, you know, longer term than just save their neck right now, you get them a visa, you contact an organization before they even arrive and say, how do I go to the next step? So that you can extend a three-month, 90-day uh, Schengen visa into a work permit. It's possible in Finland. It's not possible in Germany. It might be possible in Netherlands. It's like, it's, it's like a, it's a labyrinth. So you need professionals who know how these visa systems work. So please talk to us before you just say, I'm going to save someone's life. You might be destroying their future career. So you, you have to think about, asylum is not the best option. Uh, think about trying to legalize them as professionals in Europe or other Thank you. Um, we have only uh, room for two more questions, but first, Rebecca. Do you have a microphone? Uh, you, Sarah, you want to respond to that? Kara, did, did you want to respond to that? And then I can, because I also... Yeah, I would um, the, quickly respond to that. The experience I've had is when we fund films, filmmakers come to us and say our subjects are in danger 
and the filmmaker team has to work something out. There's not anything that I've seen that is a broad framework of understanding how to work with subjects. So we've actually added funds to production budgets to move subjects out of country that's what we've until done the too. release of a film. So that's the only advice I could give you. But the other feedback I wanted to offer to the room, um, and it's specific to the Brazil situation, but I think it applies across the board. There's so many stories here of people actively dealing with these issues. And I would say to our brothers and sisters working now in Brazil, you're right, you are at risk. Um, and I would say you know more about what's coming than you think you do because this man has a history in the military dictatorships. So I would say know your histories, take your risks seriously. And we have a colleague, we have an office in Brazil, uh, and I was talking to our program officer there saying what really is going to happen. She is sending her daughter out of the country because her daughter is gay and she's in school. She's taking it very, very seriously. Um, and what I would say is that there are um, human rights organizations that have been built up over the years in Brazil. So you have a moment now to liaise in country, to reach out and make those contacts so that you're not feeling as alone and you have resources and you use the resources that exist right now in, the, in, in Brazil um, in order to educate yourselves about what you can do in your future and then you know, I think everybody has to take into account what their assets are, what their mobility is, what their family situation is. I mean, these are these times are not business as usual. These times are extraordinary, and, and we're feeling it in the U.S. with the criminalization of protest. We're seeing detentions happen in communities all around us. Um, some of us have privileges that others don't have, but we understand that things are extremely fragile now for people that have never been in these situations before or have always been in these situations and are now even more vulnerable. So um, this is what I, you know, reach out. I guess my main message is that there are resources and there is a civil society that has been built up um, and that those resources and networks exist. And I think it's, it's um, incumbent on the film community to actually reach out and start creating those bridges across um, to resources and knowledge that can help us in this moment. Thank you so much. Um, I'm seeing one hand in the back. Then you uh, will have the last question from the audience. And then I will see if uh, both directors would like to share some thoughts with us. Yes, please go ahead. Hello, I'm Nick Story in Brazil. Um, Again, Nick, Brazil. Um, my apologies. Uh, I think, well, I think in general, just an observation, I came late. Uh, there is, uh, in general, uh, an erosion of freedom of speech everywhere, and I think it's very important that uh, in, the, in Europe, in the UK, in, in the Netherlands, in the US, that you just keep the, the, the important message of freedom of speech, because if you don't do it, if you don't uh, uh, work on this message in the West, we can't, uh, you know, when we're talking to the police, trying to do a story here, or talk, talking to the to the press, we are on our own. So it's very important that the, the message, fo the the West, uh, focus on that message because otherwise we're having we're going to have no space, and we can't. You know, being in Brazil, uh, if you're doing a story on anything, you know, you, you're dealing with a huge mechanism of uh, 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 army soldiers and everything. If you're going to cover that type of stories, people don't like to to have a camera pointing at them. So. It's very important that uh, in the West, just focus on the message that uh, we continue uh, having uh, 
working on this idea that we have to have a debate, we can't polarize, you have to work on not so much polarization, trying to get people to talk to each other, and that we focus on the freedom of speech in the West, and then it's possible to say, look, we, we can do that in, in, in the States. So the, I think the fight is all over the world, and in Brazil or in Venezuela or in these other places, I think we're just reflecting, we're just less protected, or in Turkey. So it's a very important thing. Thank you so much. I see uh, John Biaggi from the Human Rights Watch Film Festival um, talking about the freedom of expression. Is um, the clampdown on civil society in many societies, is that something that resonates with you in terms of selecting films for the Human Rights Watch Film Festival? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think what has been said here today is really very powerful and, and it's really good to see such a strong network of organizations. I, I find it very moving. Um, it, it, it is a, it is a clampdown and it, it's difficult. Uh, some of my colleagues would say, certainly in the human rights festival space, that there are often certain films we can't even show or get access to. A lot of Chinese films, for instance, have always been a problem. So there is a, a, another layer of censorship that exists that's kind of a broader layer of where filmmakers don't have the ability to show their films at certain places and that is something I don't really know how that can be addressed in the larger space. I think that's a that's a question of being safe and a lot of people have talked about the safety here and that's a question of being smart as a filmmaker. Sometimes you simply cannot show your film in certain spaces and um, I think that's something that we all have to keep in mind as we move forward with all of this very important work as well. Thank you so much. Um, I would like to ask Aura Embero, um, having heard this whole discussion and you, um, uh, Aura, instigated this whole uh, panel discussion, is there something, uh, what, what are you taking away from all of this, if I may ask you? I'm taking more questions. Uh, but I'm very happy that we're doing this discussion, that we're meeting and listening, and that we have our new friends uh, who are joining uh, all around Cara. And uh, uh, because it's inspiring to listen and hear and see what you do with authors, what you do with artists, what you do with uh, human rights defenders, it's been very enriching. And, and then I have something to add. First, I want to tell Emilia that her little uh, uh, terrible experience in Nicaragua was the final decision of making this. That's how it happens. It's accumulative, and then we read what's happening with you, and then we say, no, no, we have to do it. We have to sit down and talk. Gladly it was short. <laughs> it was not a big problem. But then what I want to say is there is a necessity in my experience of realizing how all of this should protect and not take away the agency of the filmmaker. This means that today, my very dear friend Sarah mentions the world relocation. Sarah has the, the full right to think about it today and to decide about it when she wants and to change her mind at any moment. And a year ago, we discussed it And she was looking at me like, what the hell are you talking about? And I'm pretty sure if I ask Natasha and Lula, why don't you relocate? It's obvious. This crazy guy is coming now to power. Why don't you come? It's school here. 
I'm sure that it's not my right to ask you the question. But it's your right that you have the option when you need it. I think this is the key here. And I think that I've tried a lot to create, even for filmmakers in my street, to create a seven steps manual. How do you stay safe in our street? I know the street. I know them person by person. I know the power and the, the risk. It was impossible. I see one filmmaker who panics when they see the software of decryption. Another filmmaker who like really harmed many others because of bad decryption. A third one who lost the work of three years because they forgot, you know, the uh, decryption password because they made it too long because they were so scared. And the fourth time that decryption saved somebody's life. So we should have the option, but there is no prescription. In my opinion, in my experience, it is about returning to everybody. They should have the right to understand, is it asylum? What does that entail? Is it residency? What does that entail? It's not that we shouldn't give them asylum. Should, they should understand the options. It's their choice. The same goes for filmmakers who take the risk and go, and we know it's risky. And then when Alexander and his team went to Central African Republic, nobody in the world had the right to tell them, what is this you're doing? But they did not have enough support, backup, understanding. And what's worse to me is the fact that when this terrible incident happened, it was kind of disappeared from the news very quickly. That was even worse to me in, in this sense. So my point is, how can we think about helping these great organizations friends who, with much good intention, try to help out in these conditions, figure out what is it that filmmakers would like. I mean, it's not only what's on offer. Going to Google is the last step. We go to Google, how can I, whatever. But before that, what is it that I want? Because these great organizations, I am sure, are interested in hearing what is, what is needed. Hang, can, what can we do about this? This is a question maybe for, for January for, uh, to, to, to return to later in, in further and further meetings. Well, how do we articulate our needs in a way that protects the individuality and the right, the agency, the right of being different and the right of taking risk and the right of being protected? It's our options, it's our choice. When I went to the front line to film, I was offered a, a, a vest, and what's the word for that? Vest, kind of, uh, yeah? And the minute I put it on, I panicked. I took it off, I was comfortable again. If I'm dying like the others, it's fine, but the minute I put it on, I imagined the bullet coming. <laughs> it's different things. We're different, we respond differently, and when we take risk, it might be a good idea sometimes. It might be necessary sometimes. Aura, thank you so much for uh, your contribution. I'm very glad there is an audio uh, of this, um, and so we can uh, really reread what has been said, all these wonderful suggestions. 
turning to you, Bero, in I'll January. It, I'll keep it way shorter than Orwell. At least I'll try to. Uh, I'm I'm in awe of what happened here today. I think there's a great number of films and filmmakers that are relevant that uh, we also had a direct role in or try to figure out how we fit into the scheme of enlarging that space for creativity and, and